Let's pray. Lord, you are seated on your throne. And my prayer now, before we open up this passage, is that you would help us to come and that you would let us adore you. That, Lord, even though we see the gruesome display of what mankind is capable of, of when we part from you, the Lord, you have sent to us a king who rules in peace and wisdom and honor and love. And one day his reign will go from sea to sea across this whole world, Lord. We ask that you would hasten that day and that, Lord, you would help us in the meantime to obey and revere our King, Jesus, while we wait. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Today we come to the end of our walk through Judges. And I pray that God has shown to you through this book both his magnificent holiness and his unfettered mercy as we've journeyed together through it, week by week, Sunday after Sunday. It is always a bittersweet thing for me when I conclude an exposition of a book like that, and it is certainly the case today. For though I am happy to move on and consider other portions of God's Word, and we're going to, I will miss the weekly reminder from this book that behind our worldly rebellion stands a welcoming king. A wonderful theme that we've seen week in and week out. Throughout the book of Judges, one theme has consistently revealed itself that a gracious God delivers his paganized people. Again and again we have seen this. That the sovereign one, marked by forgiveness and mercy and power, was actually willing to save his unruly called out subjects. And this is seen from the beginning of the book until the end. Now, if you recall, Judges began with an initial display of unfaithfulness by God's people Israel. Commanded to remove the idol-worshiping Canaanites completely from the land that the Lord, their God, had given them, they disobeyed. And it says in Judges chapter 1, if you recall, verse 28, that when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. So they disobeyed. They were unfaithful. What's more, they failed to teach the next generations of God's people the goodness of God's commands and the faithfulness of God's hand. In chapter 2 of Judges, it says that all that generation were gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. A new generation came up. They did not know the Lord. It's implied they didn't know the Lord because they weren't taught the Lord and they hadn't had the following of the Lord modeled before them. And this ultimately led them to an abandonment of God as they turned to other deliverers, other gods with a lowercase g, to provide for them and protect them. In Judges chapter 2, verse 12, it says, They abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. And as we have seen week in and week out, this resulted in a circular pattern of many generations in Israel 
where they sinned and they turned to idols, and then God allowed them to be painfully overtaken by foreign enemies, and they then cried out to God for deliverance from their cruel oppression, and he graciously raised up a deliverer to save them. But after a short amount of time, there they went again. They returned to the same old idolatry because they had no genuine change of heart. But shortly after, shortly after all of this, God would show his gracious hand all over again, revealing to them the kind of God that he was. He showed his gracious hand, and he never abandoned them. He kept on saving them. He kept on revealing to them his great love. But the hearts in Israel waxed worse and worse as the years went by to the point that they began to look just like the pagan people's that they themselves had been charged to remove. And even their deliverers, their own judges whom God raised up, became more and more ungodly, ending with Samson, a man driven by his own pride and lust and hunger for vengeance. Well, after many years of heading in this dark direction, the author of Judges summarized well the moral problem in the land in chapter 17 when he says in verse 6, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Each person followed their own wayward, sinful heart and refused to look upward to the God-king who could lead them in joy. And as we've seen, this resulted in terrible consequences at every level of Israelite society. In chapter 17, we saw how it degraded the families of the land and even corrupted the spiritual leadership of Israel. In chapter 18, we saw that this tainting was even at the tribal level as a whole clan of Israel abandoned their God and king and went their own way in areas of human justice and even worship. Then in chapter 19... If you recall, the bottom dropped out, and Israel went from bad to horrible. In fact, it got as bad as it could get when one of the ghastliest deeds ever recorded in all of the Bible occurred, signifying a societal corruption that had never, been for, never before been mentioned. And two weeks ago in chapter 20, we saw how that event led the people of Israel to terrible inner division and bloodshed as God brought his hand of judgment down upon them through the depravity and the awful nature of civil war. And this morning, we see the final sad result of that ghastly deed, the last sorrow that resulted from hearts that abandoned the one true God and went their own way. For today, we see how a no-king philosophy perverted human ethics in the land of Israel. Now, ethics are moral principles that govern a person or a people's behavior. They are principles that help men and women, even families and whole nations, determine what is right and wrong. And when the people of Israel stopped recognizing God as their king, they had nowhere else to look for moral guidance but inside of themselves. And as we've already mentioned several times, looking to one's own heart for moral foundation is a dangerous place to turn. For as the prophet Jeremiah wrote, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And this sickness is on display in our text this morning. And as we consider it, let me ask you, let me ask you, my friends, 
what will be your standard for right and wrong? As you read this text and you see the result of going one's own way, what will be your standard and your family's standard and our church's standard for what is right and what is good and what is proper and what is wrong and what is bad and what is improper? Where will we turn for moral conviction in our own lives? So look with me at chapter 21. The problem found in this chapter was a self-inflicted problem. If you remember from two weeks ago in chapter 20, verse 48, it related just how far Israel went in their war with Benjamin. Look at that verse with me. Chapter 20, verse 48, And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they found they set on fire. So they killed everyone and they destroyed everything. And we know that they killed even the women and the children because of the problem that we now find in chapter 21. In fact, in verse 16 of chapter 21, it says, What shall we do for wives, for those who are left, since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? So the Israelites killed them all. They evidently lost all self-control, abandoned all concern for the future, and all compassion for women and children, Israelites, mind you, who should have been preserved. These were not Canaanites, yet they were treating them as if they had to be completely removed from the land. This problem was a self-inflicted problem. Their own thirst for vengeance and blood brought this about. They had determined in their own hearts to do what they did, and my friends, they did what they wanted to do. Now, evidently, back at the beginning of chapter 20, when Israel first assembled to decide what to do about those wretched rapists in Gibeah and the tribe of Benjamin who were sheltering those guys, they made a vow and if you recall, this was not the first time that someone in this book made a tragic vow. For Jephthah, the judge of Israel, made a terrible one with regard to his own daughter back in chapter 11. And both of these rash vows ended in sorrow. Here in chapter 1, the vow was also about daughters. In verse 1, it says, No one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. So in their vow, they had decided to not allow any of the men of Benjamin who were still alive after the Civil War to marry any of their daughters. None of their girls would marry any of these Benjamite boys. They were essentially promising to doom the tribe of Benjamin, one of their kindred tribes who also came from Abraham and who also shared in God's holy covenant to utter destruction because of their harboring of these men of Gibeah and because they had the audacity to fight against Israel. Now, there is no evidence here, as I read through this text multiple times, that they sought the Lord for counsel in this matter. Rather, it seems they made this decision to utter this vow at the beginning of chapter 20, all on their own. Now, as I mentioned when we considered Jephthah's tragic vow earlier in the book, in Leviticus chapter 27, which was part of God's law for Israel, and I'll let you go and read it out yourself, the Lord mercifully provided the Israelites with a way out when they made a hasty or a foolish vow before him. If they would but pay a price, a specific price for a specific person, 
then they could be relieved of those terrible vows that they made. So if the Israelites here in chapter 21 had known the law, and if they'd trusted God and be willing to follow him, they could have been relieved of this foolish commitment that they had made. But instead, Israel came before God in sorrow over the situation that they found themselves in. In verse 2, they came to Bethel, and they sat before the Lord all day. And while they sat, they wept. And the author of Judges, I think, gives us chapter 3, excuse me, verse 3 of chapter 21 to arouse in us readers feelings of astonishment over the attitude of the Jews here in chapter 21. Look at verse 3. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And we should think when we see this, we should, we should think in our minds when we read that, why has this happened? Are you kidding me, Israel? It happened because, one, your continued unfaithfulness has been demonstrated down through the years. Two, you have been unwilling to check evil in the land whenever it occurred, opening the door for such terrible events. And three, because you made a stupid vow before God. We should be shocked at how obtuse the people of Israel were, for the answer to their question was obvious. It was their fault. This came about because of their doing. Receiving no word from the Lord, in verse 4, the next day they rose, they built an offer, altar, and they offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before him. And what did they receive from all of their pleadings with God? What was God's word for them on this occasion? Nothing but the chirp of crickets. There was no word. God gave them no utterance, just silence. They had not repented of their evil ways, even though they'd offered up these offerings. They had not repented of their evil ways. They had not concluded that all of this was their own doing. And the Lord had no word of direction for them that day. And he should not be blamed for anything that happens here, for he had every right to turn aside from them. They had rejected his word on almost every single occasion. He is right to not speak on that day. So in verse 5, the people of Israel sought to come up with their own solution. Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up in the assembly to the Lord? Verse 5 says, meaning, were there any clans in all of Israel who failed to faithfully attack Benjamin with us? And here in verse 5, we find out that they had made yet another foolish vow back before this whole war began. They had decided to put anyone to death who was unwilling to aid in this effort. Now, once again, I don't see any mention of the Lord having directed them to make either of these strong vows. So this was quite a predicament that they had put themselves in. They had slaughtered the people of Benjamin to the point that only 600 men were left in the whole tribe with no women or children for them whatsoever. And they could not give their daughters to the Benjamite remnant because they'd promised not to do so. So what would they do to preserve this tribe? Well, their first foolish solution to the problem was a cruel and foolish solution. In verse 8, they evidently went back through their record books, I'm guessing, and they determined that no one from the city of Jabesh-Gilead had come to the assembly to fight against Benjamin. Now, Jabesh-Gilead, 
If you follow that city throughout the rest of the Old Testament, you'll see it's mentioned at other times. It has kind of an interesting history you should trace sometime. Jabesh Gilead was a city on the eastern side of the Jordan River, which bordered several of the tribes of Israel. So it was filled with Israelites, and likely it was filled with Israelites of differing tribes who all lived in one city. Well, there was no explanation as to why the men of this city had not come to the fight. Perhaps they even had a perfectly good explanation. We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But regardless, the bloodthirsty eyes of Israel's leaders were now turned against them. Now imagine for a moment that you're a citizen of Jabesh Gilead. You're tending your crops. You're raising your family. You're going about your normal, everyday life. And then you look to the west and you see an army coming against your town. And not some foreign army, but an army of Israelites, your own kin. And this was Israel's solution. They determined to solve their problem through more war and through more bloodshed. They, desert, they determined to solve the problem by attacking more of their own. And in verse 12, that's precisely what happened. They mustered 12,000 men, and they sent them eastward across the Jordan with instructions to kill everyone, including the women and the children. Contemplate that for a moment. Again, these were Israelites. These were Jews. This was not a pagan enemy. There was no divine instruction here. And their tactics were about as gruesome as could be imagined between one group against itself. But these men were also instructed to preserve any virgins they found, any young women who had not been with the man, and 400 of them were plucked out of that town. So again, this was their plan. Since all the men of Jabesh-Gilead were dead and could no longer break the vow by giving their daughters to the Benjamite remnant, their daughters could then be seized and used for wives for the men of Benjamin. So their plan was to kill their kindred, men, women, and kids, seize their virgin daughters, and then force them to marry the men of Benjamin. Now keep in mind, these men of Benjamin had been willing to give up their lives to defend the male rapists of Gibeah. So these guys, I'm just guessing, were not exactly class acts themselves. But at least now, they would have wives. Or at least some of them would have wives. Because there were only 400 virgins of Jabesh Gilead, and there were 600 men of, ben of Benjamin. So the math didn't work out. There was still a problem. And their second solution to the problem was also foolish and cruel. They proclaimed peace to the remnant of Benjamin, and they gave them the 400 young women. Verse 15 says that the people had compassion on Benjamin because the Lord made a breach in the tribes of Israel. And here the author of Judges is again reminding us that all of these events came about as a result of God's sovereign hand of judgment upon his rebellious people. The Lord had allowed that they might experience his disciplinary hand. And if only they had learned. But in verse 16 they recognized that the problem still remained. If Benjamin was to be preserved, their men would need more wives. So in verse 19, they came up with another rotten idea. Every year, there was a feast at Shiloh, 
It's likely that worship at the holy place at Shiloh had been perverted, so we don't really know what this feast would have been all about. But this feast included the daughters of Shiloh who would come out to dance near the vineyards of Shiloh. Perhaps these were the daughters of Israelite men who'd given them to the place for this special service, but we don't really know the whole story behind why these girls were there or why they went about this dancing. But we do know Israelite's plan, the Israelite plan. The men of Benjamin were to lie in wait in the vineyards, it says. So perhaps there was some drinking and drunkenness that was going on here at the Feast of the Lord. It's only an assumption. And when they saw the girls dance, they were to jump in and seize the girls and then lead them to their own land to be their wives. So, get this. They were to hide They were to watch young girls dance, and then they were to abduct them, never returning them again to their families. Again, these likely wouldn't have been the most caring and compassionate and tender of fellas to begin with. Likely, these guys were brutes, and these girls would now be living with them for the rest of their lives. My friends, Israel's plan is the abduction and the sexual assault and the rape of their own daughters. Rape is forced sex. Is this not forced? These were girls made in the image of God, their creator, young women from their own families who were forced to do this. And how sadly ironic that all of this first came about due to their attempt to punish the men of Gibeah for the rape of an Israelite daughter. It shows that it's not just Gibeah that had a problem when it came to how they viewed women. Well, verses 23 and 24 sum it up. The people of Benjamin did so, and they took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family, and they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. So everything returned to normal, and my friends, normal was not good. Read 1 Samuel, read 2 Samuel, read 1 Kings, read 2 Kings. Normal was not good in Israel. And verse 25 caps it all off as it returns to the theme. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The brilliant author of Judges has bracketed now this section of his book, bringing it back to the ultimate theme that all of this was going on because there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone looked to their own authority. They had a no-king philosophy of life. They did whatever seemed right according to their own devising. They had no king in their minds, no sense of appreciation for the commands of their God. However, here's the good thing. Even here, I think we see an allusion to God's grace. Do you notice how the book just ends there? There's no happy ending in Judges, my friends. If you were waiting for chapter 22 to say everything went good, they turned, that didn't happen. Well, even here, I think, even at this very stark ending, we see an allusion to God's grace. For though there was no king in Israel, I think through this author of Judges, God is letting us know that he had planned for one. In verse 25, 
the void is again pointed out. They didn't have a king. In fact, this whole book, this whole book has talked about this void. This whole book has pointed out this void that God's people needed a king, a great deliverer to save them and to lead them. And he himself, we know the rest of the story, would one day fill that void. For he would send a king who would lead his people, his chosen ones, with justice and wisdom and power and righteousness. Because, my friends, who could he send but his own son? So perhaps a thousand years later, after many more generations of rebellion from God's people, he sent his king into the city of Jerusalem. And hear what the Gospel of John says on Passover Sunday. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel! And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Not Passover Sunday, I misspoke. Palm Sunday, where God's people were laying down their palms because the king was coming into the town rejoicing that the king had arrived, and if only they had continued to accept him. But instead, this king went to a cross to purchase his chosen people, redeeming them from sin and death and hell. Jesus Christ raised up to pay the price for your sins and mine. The God of grace, he did carry out his plan to deliver his paganized people. He showed it in different forms throughout this book, and he brought it to reality through the the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. So how do we apply this passage? Well, you've got to think a little bit. The example given by Israel in chapter 21 is that when a people adopt their own form of ethics apart from God, it will eventually result in the undermining and the devaluing and the abuse and the oppression of other people. Thus, all of society is adversely affected when people choose to reject God as king. And conversely, all of society is favorably affected when God's people honor God as king. My friends, when we transplant God's authority found in the Bible for our own moral considerations found in our own hearts, then we ultimately have no solid ground upon which to stand for the valuing of human life or the protection of weaker people. Because ultimately, we will then most value only what is helpful in our own estimation, and everyone else can then, at least somewhat, to some degree, be considered as expendable. In other words, if they get in the way of what we want, then we can push them aside or we can remove them altogether. Germany, 1930s. America, 2019. If we have a desire or a need, then we can use others, no matter what it might cost them, to fulfill our desire or our need. And if they get in the way, they stop meeting that desire, we can push them aside. 
Now, I am not saying that this happens at equal proportions in every God-rejecting society at all times and all days. I am not saying that every God-rejecting society immediately starts oppressing or killing weaker people. What I am saying is that different levels of this kind of human devaluation will always be seen in such a society, probably at ever-increasing levels, because this is what self-directed humans do. This is what humans do when they reject God. And Israel in chapter 21 provides for us a prime example. I want you to hear with me the Apostle Paul. If you would turn with me to Romans chapter 1, such a vital text in so many ways, but also vital for our purposes to grasp this better this morning. Romans chapter 1, if you would turn there with me, I want you to notice verses 28 through 31, and I want you to hear what Paul says happens when people reject God. Romans chapter 1, verse 28 says this, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So stop right there. Human beings, he's speaking about generally, did not see fit to acknowledge God, to honor God, to praise God, to revere God, to follow God, to obey God. They did not see fit to do that, so God gave them up, which means he let them have their own way. He gave them up to debased minds, minds that are debased, to do what ought not to be done. And here's the result. Verse 29. Catch these words. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, and catch this, heartless, ruthless. Is that not Israel in chapters 19 through 21 of Judges? They did not see fit to acknowledge God as their Lord and King over them any longer. They went their own way. And what was the result? Heartlessness and ruthlessness, murder, malice, maliciousness, strife, and evil. This is what happens when a people reject God as King. And how important it is to reflect upon that on Palm Sunday, on the day when we're to remember that the king came into the city, that by and large human beings have rejected him altogether. All of us have to an extent, and only the redeemed can say, you are my Lord. And I think this should affect us, this reality that Judges 21 tells us, that Paul makes more clear for us. I think this should affect us in at least a couple of ways today. Number one, I think this should make us stop being so surprised at what is happening here in the United States. When we hear illegal immigrants 
spoken of as if they were less than the God-created image bearers that he made them to be by individuals who themselves are lawbreakers, but who can muster no compassion for people who, yes, broke the law, but often in order to flee oppression or get a better life for themselves or their families, we have, I think, this kind of mindset displayed before us. Now, I am not talking about what our national laws should be, nor am I talking about how strict we should be at enforcing them. I'm not going down that road. What I am simply saying is that human beings, all human beings, regardless of color, regardless of where they're from, should be given a level of compassion by other people who are made in the image of God. And I don't think that's seen in many quarters of our country by many people, some in the church. Furthermore, when we hear women and children come forward, seemingly in droves today, to relate what a man in their youth or a man in their workplace, or a man in their homes did to them, and we see how one institution after another is culpable in such abuse, including many churches, then we have a no-king ethic that's been put on display before us. And when we spend more than 45 years as a nation debating the worth of an unborn child of God as to whether or not we should allow him or her to live. My friends, we live in a no-king land. And my point is that this should not surprise us. If it surprises you, stop it. Instead, this should make us get serious about promoting the king in his ways, both in our words and our actions. This should make us drop all of our apathy and go boldly with this God because, oh, does our community and our state and our land need it, not to mention the whole world. And secondly, I think this reality should make us, each person at Riverside here this morning, Take a deep look into our own lives. Where are we ignoring or devaluing or rejecting the clear teachings of God in his word? In what ways have we, like the Israelites, erected our own selves as king over our lives, looking to our own minds and our own hearts and our own feelings for our direction? I think that we must ask questions regularly like this because we can so quickly begin to believe the opposing narratives that are constantly being told around us. Narratives that tell us that we don't need God, at least in certain areas of our lives, but that we can figure things out all by ourselves. And that is a dangerous story. That's a dangerous line of reasoning. My friends, will you let, I ask you, will you let God's word direct your life? Will you submit to his leading and his commands and his wisdom? The king has come and he died and rose again to pay for your sins. And now he stands triumphantly above all as one who is worthy of all of our allegiance. 
So surrender whatever it is that's keeping you from serving him fully in your life. There's no time like today. So let me close the book of Judges in the last couple of minutes with a few important exhortations from this book. Number one, I think from this book we should take this. We must be careful to obey our king's commands as we look to him as our standard of truth. It would be very easy, like the Israelites, to not obey him precisely as he tells us, to take a little bit of his truth and twist it according to our own devising. It would be very much like Israel for us to only be faithful in a little. It would be very much like us to not put his word up high and say, I will follow it at every point. With bold trust, we must listen and obey what he says with regard to how we are to serve him, with regard to how we are to take the gospel to the lost, with regard to how we're to organize ourselves, with regard to how we're to treat each other, with regard to how we're to raise our families, with regard to how we're to relate with one another. We are to look to his word for direction. And when it comes to how we are to see the world around us and respond to the world around us, we must take our direction from the Bible. So that's my first exhortation. Number two, in our efforts to reach the people of our culture, we must not become like the people of our culture. At the beginning, they came into the land and they were God's people to bring his judgment, and to be a shining city for all of the world to see right there in the land of Palestine. That's what they were to be. But by the end of the book, they were just like the Canaanites who had first lived in the land. They had become pagan just like them. They lost sight of God. They lost sight of his word. And soon they were just like everybody else. They'd become a worldly church, so to speak. Well, yes, we do have an obligation to go to them. No, we are not to close ourselves off as monks. Yes, we are to go with the gospel and be in people's lives and be building relationships at workplaces and be trying to get to know our neighbors and to love them as Christ loves them and to share the truth of the gospel with them. Yes, we must be among them. And yes, there are things about our culture that we're going to enjoy. But my friends, we must be so careful because before too long, we can become just like them if we lose sight of what the Word teaches, if we don't hold tight to one another, looking to Christ constantly, we can easily become just like the world we're trying to reach. We must be in them, my friends, but we must not be of them. So in our efforts to reach our culture, we must not become like the people of our culture, like Israel did. Third, we must diligently teach our children of God's wise instructions his sovereign power, and his eternal faithfulness. So often, unfaithfulness in Scripture is the result of people not fulfilling 2 Timothy 2, verse 2. Paul says to Timothy, these things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, go and tell faithful men who will teach others also. He says, Timothy, everything I've told you, you go tell others and you tell them in such a way that they will be able to teach others. That this truth will be passed on from me to you, from you to them, and from them to others. That it will be passed on 
from one spiritual generation to the next spiritual generation, from one physical generation to the next physical generation. Teaching that next crop that God has brought forward to know God. No, we can't change hearts, but we can certainly model what God has done. And he works through that. So we must, we must diligently teach and not become those who stop communicating God's truth so that a new generation arises who does not know the Lord. The best way to kill a church is to stop teaching your kids. Well, number four, and finally, we must forever cling to God's gracious provision of a better judge to both save us and lead us. I think if you reflect on all of the different men that were mentioned in the book of Judges, I can't imagine really any of you in this room would say, I want that guy to be my leader. I want him to be my example. I want to follow him. I want him to deliver. I want him to save. I want him to rule. And I think that shows us that we all want something better. We want someone who can lead us with the kind of wisdom and righteousness and tenderness and care that only God can provide. And my friends, we have it. God has provided us a better king. He came into Jerusalem. He bled. He died for you. He rose again. And now he sits triumphantly on a throne, reigning over this world. And we must ever look to him as that altogether better judge, that altogether better savior, that altogether better king. And we must give him all of our allegiance. So when we come together and we put the gospel before you week after week and we talk about him and what he's done, it's for a reason. Because we can't ever lose sight of this person. So the book of Judges, God graciously delivers a paganized people. And you and I, paganly in our transgressions and sins, dead as Paul writes because of them, have seen the grace of God through Jesus Christ and through Jesus, we also can be delivered. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I do just thank you once again for what you've taught us in this book. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have a bigger view of you as a result of it, a bigger view of your holiness and, Lord, your righteousness and judgment, but also, Lord, a higher view of your mercy and grace and your willingness, Lord, to do amazing things for people you love. Lord, I pray that we would push aside the things, Lord, that keep us from you. That, Lord, we would repent of any errant ways. And that, Lord, our thinking would be brought into conformity with the teachings of your word. And so we thank you, Lord, that you were able to do this. We thank you that we have the high King Jesus, Lord. And as we close down our time, we ask that you'd help us, Lord, to reflect upon him, especially this week, as we consider his death and then his glorious resurrection. And we pray this in his name.